Welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is July 21st, uh, 2020. It is a Tuesday, and I think we're going to try and have this one out to you tomorrow morning. That seems more realistic. <laughs> yeah. uh, we are a little delayed because, Andy, you apparently have drilling outside of your house. <laughs> yeah, that sounds dirty when you put it that way. Um, the <laughs> Nobody <laughs> thought that but you. <laughs> yeah, no one thought that. <laughs> I never had that thought. I get it. I get someone's Okay. I'm a 12-year-old. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, they're putting in a doorbell. Like, we just, we, as we discussed, we moved. And there's a bunch they're of putting in things. a doorbell? Our doorbell does not work. How much drilling does a doorbell take? I don't know. It seems like it's one hole. Like, you <laughs> put the doorbell in the now hole. Now that sounds dirty, oh, actually. Are they, are they, are they burrowing an entire, like, tunnel through your house or something that to put a doorbell cord in? I don't like, know. Do you have, is there, like, a giant gate that is separated by a moat or something like he's that. in a gated community in philadelphia oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, tammy how are you doing i'm doing well i've been taking oh, um, good. really long walks with my parents kind of living a retiree lifestyle where are you walking we walk down to the water um in tacoma washington oh. yeah it's very pleasant near the golf course no <laughs> oh but oh, that i know what you're good. talking about though that is really nice too yeah, yeah. How are you, nice. Jay? Um, good, good. I've been uh, I've been trying to come up with. Uh, I don't want to give away the game, but you know, I don't think everyone who follows me on Twitter listens to the podcast. But I've been trying for the past two weeks to come up with the most annoying musical opinion ever, <laughs> like one that will like make everyone mad at oh, once. Oh, that explains the hot takes. Okay. So that's, yeah. yeah. I was like, why is he going through his like 1992 musical collection? <laughs> <laughs> well, part of it is sincere, you know, um, but I, I don't know. The part of what I've been, part of it is that I actually have been listening to a lot of this music again. And Tammy, did, like, uh, did you go to, did you go, uh, this is a totally gendered question and uh, <laughs> not fair, but did, Andy, I'll ask you too, but did you go to, uh, did you go to Lilith Fair? I did not go to Lilith Fair, but I uh, admired it what, what from did, afar. Oh, you I did. Know. Okay. Cause I was going to ask, what was your general opinion? Cause I can, you're of the age now, not to give away your age, <laughs> where in high school in Tacoma, Washington, I could imagine a young Tammy Kim being kind of into like, you know, like, uh, into little affair musicians, like, you know what I mean? Like, oh, Joe, Joe Osborne has maybe questioned, <laughs> <laughs> questioned my Korean church upbringing <laughs> or, 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 uh, Natalie Merchant, you know, makes me feel empowered in, in a way. What, what was your thought about little affair? There was a fair amount of recording from the radio onto cassette tapes during this period. Okay, yes. so which one was your favorite? I would say I Did you feel like-, like Sarah McLaughlin and Natalie Merchant were important to girls of my generation. I I agree with that. I, well, that was the thing that I was thinking about where it was just like, to me, Lilith Fair, we're going to talk about this the whole show. <laughs> Lilith Fair was the most, uh, it was like a huge cultural event that happened because it happened when I was basically finishing up high school, right? Like 1997, 1999. And um, I just remember, and of course I grew up in like a university town in the south mm. that had a lot of you know i don't know people who would probably be called karens or something like that now or they're probably karens now but at the time they're you know like figuring out in a very liberal town in the south the idea of like political expression and little affair was this huge deal but the thing that i can't quite figure out is just how big of a deal it was nationally 
You know, and it seems like it was a big deal nationally, but like... Uh, I wonder if you need to say um, what it is to some of our listeners who may have never heard of it. Yeah. Okay, so Lilith Fair, <laughs> let me see if I can do this succinctly, was a, it was like Horde, it was like the Horde Fest, it was, I think, modeled after the Horde Fest, and it was, Sarah McLaughlin decided that she wanted to start a music festival for women, and it was her, Natalie Merchant, Jewel was part of it, Fiona Apple was in the first one. Um, let's see who else, like everybody, the Indigo, Indigo Girls, girls. Yeah. um, uh, Beth Orton was in it, um, Amy Mann, oh, that's right. uh, Cheryl Crow, Missy Elliott was in one of the, oh, wow. like at a lot of the tour dates, <laughs> Erica Badu, I know all this because I just read the Wikipedia. Okay. I was I like, very, damn, I, Jay. <laughs> <laughs> I, read, I read a very long... I don't know, so that I've been trying to figure out, like, was this music good or bad, you know? Because my impulse is to just think that it's bad because it's so earnest and it's, it feels so dated at this point, you know? But then I also think, like, some of it actually doesn't sound dated. Now, some of it, obviously, like Fiona Apple, for example, like, is much better yeah. in terms of standing the test of time than something like Natalie Merchant or, or uh, oh, Paula like Cole. Yeah. Oh, you do like yeah. Natalie Merchant? Okay. <laughs> no, yeah, she's underrated. But like, yeah, Sarah McLaughlin, <laughs> that album Mirrorball kind of sounds very 95, 96, whenever it came out. Yeah, yeah. Sarah McLaughlin has, is a great singer in terms of like vocal talent, but right. her yeah. songs are like kind of like just insufferable at this point. <laughs> but um, I don't know. The only, I just wanted to know like, if, if you guys thought that the songs I mean, Jay, were did still you... good. Did you go, or were you tempted to go? <laughs> no, I didn't go. I was, I was, I only listened to rap in high school, and I'm sure I said extremely problematic things about uh, Lilith there. <laughs> but you know, in my older age, I've come to you know to examine my, the prejudices of my youth and think about it a little bit more. Um, now you're playing these songs for your daughter. To get her, like... <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> there are many outcomes that uh, that could happen to a young woman, I think, growing up in Berkeley, California, but I think that... And the question... That is the actual question I have, which was just, like, is it inevitable that she'll have, like, a Lilith Fair phase? <laughs> or is this... Or is this music over? You know, like, is it not going to be examined again? And then I just thought, like, well, is this, like, type of feminism over mm-hmm. in general? See, I was getting somewhere. Tan, oh, man, that's, like, that's tough. Well, And by that, I just mean, like, kind of, like, indie-ish, right. but still mass market, very white, right? Yeah. That's what very vague in what its messaging is. All the songs are mostly about relationships still, mm-hmm. you know? And, uh, but it is about, like, kind of this feminism that's, like, get yourself away from the shitty right. man type yeah. of I think okay so is that feminism I think that yeah I think as you just articulated it's over yeah Yeah. but and I but I think like the like part of that is the like corporate kind of like co-optation of a certain kind of like feel-good feminism and then I think it's also that people of like your guys's daughter's generation and the people who are between your daughters and us they're like for them this kind these kind of like gendered stereotypes are so played out you know, because they're so much more, like, fluid and open than we are. Like, how, how do you feel, Tammy, like, you know, in terms of, you've written, you wrote this week, actually, about, you know, types of feminism. Like, wh- when you're trying to compare that type of, like, mass market cultural event, mm-hmm. right, like, that style of feminism, which is so white, and then what comes <laughs> after it, which is a sort of Beyonce corporate yeah. girl boss feminism, right, which is, like, embodied in clothing lines, it's embodied in... Uh, 
music, it's embodied in this sort of powerful corporate woman. Right. Which one do you think produced better art? Oh my god. Um. <laughs> Just flinging out the question. <laughs> <Is> there, <laughs> we do no preparation for the yeah, show. In fact, like, when Andy and wow. Tammy start discussing things in our chat, I tell them to shut up because we're not supposed to prepare. <laughs> and then he's like, Lilith Fair. Oh. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was like, anti-corporate? Yeah, it was definitely part of that late 90s, like, you know, no label type of movement, right? Like, we need okay. to, or like, ad busters type of thing it was out of that same spirit aesthetically yeah. the, the artists themselves are definitely on major records right yeah sure. but we're not we don't we're not examining that contradiction right <laughs> now. we're only talking about we're only talking about the the, the message what they, yeah what they were the their lyrics, forward yeah, face yeah. to the public yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. i know what do you think what was i better? feel like if if my choices are beyonce or fiona apple ish i would probably go with fiona apple ish okay but what about beyonce or Jewel. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> well, now, like, my artistic tastes are getting blurred in there. Um, I think... Oh, God. I don't yeah, know. Can, really it, can I choose option E? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know. It was, it's been strange to watch, though. It's yeah. like It was definitely a thing. It was, like, kind of, like, the message was, like, very embodied in Shania Twain or somebody right. or somebody like that, which is like uh like I'm I'm just gonna or like uh Liz Fair, right? Who I think of all those people is probably her uh, this is not a controversial take. Exxon Guyville is probably like the That's best so of that good. type of that era. And maybe Exxon Guyville is one of the five best American albums ever produced. I think Do you guys know that song Ant in Alaska that she sang? It's like about what? Breaking up. But I remember yes, being yes. like, I just remember like weeping after like <laughs> several different breakups with that song. <laughs> is that feminism? I don't think so, but whatever. <laughs> Do you guys, is, is there like a male equivalent uh, for that? Like, what is the male No, equivalent? the male equivalent I think is Exile and Guyville. <laughs> Exile and Guyville, uh, Illmatic. Oh, yeah, Illmatic. And then probably like, uh, I don't know. Live at, uh, I don't know, I don't know. One of the one of the, pick your pick one of the two Sam Cooke live albums, and then um, maybe those are the <laughs> maybe those are the best albums ever produced. Now I'm just picturing Andy and Jay like weeping over Illmatic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't cry over Illmatic. I just think Illmatic is probably the best album made. Um, okay, we can move on from this, but um, I, I was trying to see if we could go a half hour to talk about Lilith Fair, wow. but that's what's been on my mind, and I, and, uh, and Tammy, I knew that you would be, you know, not to, you can be offended if you'd like, but I was like, I bet Tammy was really into Lilith Fair, I feel stereotypes, but also seen. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Lilith Fair... Feminism. We should talk about what's happening in Portland right now, right? <laughs> um, which is <laughs> just up the, just up the, just down the street from Tacoma. I think it's two-hour drive from where you grew up, Tammy. Uh, there is a mass, you know, it feels like a reignition of street actions that are going on, and that it happened. I'm sure everybody who's listening to this knows this, but it happened because. You know, for about two weeks in Portland, I would be following it, and there would be like sort of like these indigenous kids, and there would be uh, a bunch of the old. I'm not going to out them on the show, but like we all know, you know, like old old Portland mm-hmm. people, 
and that they would be targeting the um, the Justice Center downtown. And uh, there was not many of them, you know, but they kept it up for so long that obviously federal troops of a type that are almost impossible to define right now, like people are starting to learn more about them, but you know, I think the best thing that we can call them is just like a paramilitary force came to guard, quote unquote, the federal courthouse. And then um, there was a group that organized, I heard through a Facebook group, because one of my friends uh, is like a Facebook mom's group in Portland. Oh, really? That's how it got going? <laughs> Aw, yeah. that's so sweet. Um, and they came out wearing yellow to protect, mm-hmm. you know, like their moms for, uh, you know, they sort of like some of the, they had different names. Mom Tifa was one of them that I thought was funny. But <laughs> the, the wall of moms was another. Mom Tifa was the funniest really one. Like, that one actually made me laugh. Um, but they came out and they were tear gassed, you know. And if you watch some of the videos, you can see a vi- like the, it's like five white moms. One of them is extremely pregnant. And then one of them just gets hit with a tear gas canister fired by a federal. And maybe I think it might that one might have been like Portland police. Um, and then this, the next day more people come out and the next day more people come out. Right. So, uh, Tammy, like there, I mean, either one of you, like, uh, like, what do you think? Like, do you think things are back to back on now because of this? Well, there's Portland, there's also Chicago, right? Yeah. That there was, yeah. uh, like a high school age or a college age woman was beat up by the cops and that also spurred. Lots more rallies the next day. So yeah. I think in both cases you have people finding out, like maybe things were dying down for a bit. Then you have these spectacular events of mm-hmm. this particular victim, or this particular outrageous story of like homeland security people in Portland abducting people in vans, and this is what actually spurs a reaction by everyone else. Like people who might who might be on the fence, they come out the next day and overwhelm the city. Yeah. Right. Do you guys think this is in yeah. reaction to the taking down of monuments? Because in Portland, the feds coming in really seemed spurred by the the protesters attacking the the monuments of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Well, Trump said that. Yeah. Right? So do we buy it? And but and they are also attacking, not attacking, but you know. <laughs> yeah. They were also near right? the they were near the federal courthouse. Right. Yeah. And so the. Federal troops in Portland are general, at least last night, are generally guarding the federal mm-hmm. courthouse. And so last mm-hmm. night, when like very late at night, I didn't even figure this out until I woke up. But like I was scrolling back into my timeline, Mike Baker, who's a uh, correspondent for the New York Times, who did a lot of great reporting around coronavirus in the early days mm-hmm. of uh, in the early days of February, when you know it was just in Washington State. He's now covering Portland. He got punched by one of these yeah. federal yeah. officers last night. Crazy. At like 2 in the morning. And uh, so I guess it really went off last night. Um, and I think that maybe uh, that, but it seemed from his timeline, I trust his reporting on this, is that like what happened is some kids went up and did some stuff to the, you know, there's plywood over the federal courthouse building, and they went and they sort of like either tore it down or kicked at it, and then the, fed, and then the feds rushed out. Uh-huh. Um, each time and started firing off tear gas and punching people apparently. Um, so I think it's both. I think it's in response to that building and mm-hmm. then maybe it is in response to statues. Yeah. I mean, the the thing that I read that got people uh, that was so outrageous about Portland was that the actual Portland mayor 
and local police, and all of them are saying they don't actually want these federal officers in the city. Right. And they did it anyway. So it does seem like it's this um, unilateral decision from the federal level, and especially the, the Department of Homeland Security. Yeah. That is going into these cities sort of unauthorized and doing, you know, abducting people in vans and, you know, kind of holding them for 24 hours without telling them what they did wrong. So it does seem like this is all coming from, if not Trump, like some centralized agency in D.C. and not the local level. It seems like the local level cops, I don't know. I don't know if they're like, they want to de-escalate, but they were not. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the Portland cops have a really bad reputation. Yeah. And they had early on in these protests, I think, a court order against them because they were using so much pepper spray and other sorts of munitions. But but yeah, I mean, at this point, it seems entirely a federal problem, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. Tammy, are you you, are you how worried are you about this or like what at a level? Because I'm asking you from a legal perspective because you are the one that. You know, out of all of us, I think you're the one who has an actual skill that you used to be a lawyer. <laughs> I guess Andy has a skill as a historian. Um, I have skills in the, you know, debater. More in the, yeah, I have no idea. But like the, <laughs> but Tammy, are you how 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 extraordinary is this? This is a question that I've asked myself several times, and um, it's hard to discern and disentangle. The images that you see, the alarm that you read, and you know, and then what is, you know, uh, the sort of dismissals on the other side. Yeah. So, what what do you think we're at? I think it's not unprecedented. I mean, in the sense that obviously we know that the federal forces have been used in to try to quell and manage protests in the language of the government, you know, since the '60s, right? And Jay, you were at Standing Mm -hmm. Rock, like that was a problem there. It's been a problem, yeah. you know, ever since things blew up in, in Minnesota. But I think the extraordinary aspect of it is that it's Customs and Border Protection. It's ICE. Mm-hmm. It's agents. Mm-hmm. It's not National Guard troops, right? So it's using, like, all kinds of different federal infrastructures and mostly new ones, like, you know, under DHS, to mm-hmm. do stuff that they're not supposed to do. I mean, this is not at all within their mandate. So in a way... Trump is kind of using like the agencies that are closest to him to do this work. Mm-hmm. Also, I find I've found that very very yeah. interesting, right? Because it's part of CBP too, yeah. and ICE's you know continued lack of transparency and just basically like rogue behavior under the Trump administration. Those yeah. those so those agencies could be taking more much more direct um, orders from Trump than the other ones. Yeah, that's well, that's how it's operating now. You know, I mean, they've gotten all sorts of different exemptions, like even just around like the FOIA requests and, you know, transparency with regard to things like salaries, like things that are just so kind of beyond the pale of public behavior, of public agency Uh conduct. So that to me, you know, I think this is an extraordinary moment. I think it's also a good illustration of something we care about on the podcast, which is the connection between. U.S. military infrastructure and local police. Mm Because you can't get much more direct than this. Yeah. Yeah. No, it feels like we're back in the 2000s with all this, (laughs) right, worry about war and terror and what what happens when you authorize these sort of extra legal um, measures and police forces and people, you know, back then people were saying, you know, you don't want to go down this road of the war on terror could have all these negative consequences mm-hmm. and it does seem like you know 10 15 years ago or 10 or 15 years later a lot of the you know a lot of that has actually come to fruition 
in places. Yeah, like all the extraordinary totally. rendition walks are yeah, right. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, like they have like a, like what they're doing in ter- like and I the only evidence that we have is that they pick these kids up right or not and they're not all kids but I just use that term loosely mm-hmm. yeah. you know uh, but they pick up these people and they put them in unmarked vans. They don't have any marking of who they are except they're in fucking fatigues, which is so, ridiculous, mm-hmm. you know? Wow, yeah. And then they kind of lock you up for a little bit, and then they go through your stuff, and then they let you go, right? So I think that the... I don't know if anyone has been disappeared or anything mm-hmm. like that, and that's uh, yet, right? But yeah. the idea that you're being kidnapped into a van is the problem, right? Mm-hmm. It's not... And that what can that lead to? Totally, yeah. I think it's an extraordinary moment, too, because... Um, and I think that the the response from the press, I think that there's a lot of columns out about it. You know, Michelle Goldberg, I think, wrote about it today. Okay, um, okay. And I think that the response from the press has actually been proportionate mm-hmm. for once, right? That um, it is a real fear. And then I think the response from the I think the response from the press is and is what it is because the response from the Portland community is what it is um or has been what it is Mm. like but like okay this is another question i have about this though which is that this this mom tifa thing (laughs) you know like this this line of moms thing like what do you think about it because i think that i've seen i've seen a lot of takes about it now like my i i can give you my take in a second but like like tammy as you know as what what do you think about this in terms of what we were talking about before in terms of like feminism and and the idea (laughs) it all goes back to Lilith Ferrisy it all goes back to Lilith I'm I'm going with the unified Lilith Fair theory of the world (laughs) Uh, what is what do you think about it I don't have any particular problem with it to me it it reminded me of like you know Catholic nuns you know nuclear resistance and peace protesting and it's very portland yeah. you know portland <laughs> the core of liberal white portland has turned out for these protests that doesn't seem like such a bad thing to me i don't know what do you guys think i don't know i mean so jay said they were all organized through facebook groups like moms <laughs> portland mom facebook groups i don't know that for sure i just know that my friend's wife who is a mom of three now uh-huh. um oh wow yeah she, she said her yeah. Facebook moms group was organizing a lot of this. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, it's open-ended, but I guess as, as a visceral level, uh, it's, it's heartening to see quote-unquote normies, right? People who are kind of outside the demographic of who you would um, imagine at a lot of these protests show up. Mm-hmm. And that's, Do what, you think, that's what you want, right? Like, so the, you watch these videos, and I talked to a couple of people who were there, and, you know, the, the message is still about George Floyd. It's still black. They still have chaining Black Lives Matter and stuff like that. But obviously the reason why they're there is because of the federal troops that are there, mm-hmm. right? And that there yeah. seems to be, like, it, they, they weren't there. There were massive port, pro Portland protests for Black Lives Matter. I think a lot of those people just came out again. But it, it, this Montiva thing is not that, right? The Montiva thing seems to be a response to Trump. Like mm. I was wondering, if, that's what I was wondering about. Mm-hmm. It's just like, does that make you uneasy at all? So because I don't. Sorry. I, yeah, I don't think it's debatable that it's that this is a response to Trump. You know, like this is a response to federal forces, and it's also a response to really to Trump tweeting about it, right? right? Trump tweeting, Portland's out of control. Blah blah right. blah. I'm good, like, I'm. They should thank me for my federal. And that that's when you get like a bunch of nimby moms coming out. <laughs> now, 
No, but at the same time, it's like, yeah. you know, it is it. It's sort of like, not not in my Portland. Right. But, but, <laughs> but, but it's also more, they're, they're taking a more radical action than just the women's march of just kind of walking in a pre-staged oh, for sure. rally, yeah. right? So there is, uh, it's, you know, like you, like you said, like we shouldn't make the distinction between good and bad protesters. You actually want them to push... To push all of them, like if they're, if they're these liberal groups that want to do very safe, cautious things, you can work with that. And maybe some of them okay. can be pushed into more radical things. Mm, mm-hmm. But devil's advocate here. Getting rid of federal troops in that area is a very easy task to fulfill, right? Mm-hmm. They just have to leave. Mm-hmm. And then does that mean that all the moms go home? You know, like is it is it too small of a, of a thing or should they try and refocus it on... Uh, on George Floyd, like, or defunding the Portland Police Bureau, mm-hmm. like, what should they do here? Because it does really seem to me that the moms are out there, that the mom Tifa thing is to protect <laughs> against these federal forces and anger at Trump. Yeah. But um, a lot of the large protests have been in response to rioting by police. Yeah. So, you know, I think that that's an entry point for a lot of people who probably have like a BLM, their BLM support, their tendency is to support BLM. They may not have fully developed like abolitionist politics or whatever, but they'll see their children or friends getting brutalized and they'll come out. And I think that's, that's good, you know, and I don't know though. I mean, I think your question is fair, Jay, but to me, that's more of a question also of just, um, you know, when the brutality stops, do we all stop going out? So it's a general yeah. question that I reckon with myself. Like, I've been going to fewer protests in recent weeks. Yeah, look, I don't have a problem with any of this. You know, I think that our general thesis on the show is that all protest is good protest, right? We have a big tent for different types of protests. <laughs> yeah. And so, like, uh, the, the, if you're trying to get a bunch of, a group of 40, 30, 30 to 45-year-old white women wearing yellow shirts and bicycle hats and looking about as like basic as possible, <laughs> getting tear gassed by federal officers, such a powerful image. You know, it's the type of thing that, can, that will radicalize all sorts of people, I think, and change their minds about the police. And I think that the one thing that I find to be so inspiring and interesting about the Bomtiva thing is just that they're clearly trying to do that. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. like people saying, oh, they're just trying to keep the peace. It's bullshit. You know, they are clearly trying to go these federal officers into a confrontation. <laughs> I don't see how you could right. not think that yeah. way. Maybe not all of them are. But man, there are some of them who are, you yeah. know, and like that's why you stand right in yeah, front of them sure. and block them from everybody else is because you want them to attack you, you know, and that's, you know, like that, that's a strategy that was employed by, you know, has been employed for you know, I don't know, maybe not millennia, but like centuries, <laughs> right? Which is that you have like the, the military Greece. force attack you and then the you tell people Greek about it. Right? <laughs> yeah. And so my thing is just like, it's like, who is the person that could be attacked the most other than children by the police that would inspire the mm. most outrage in the country? And mm. it's almost certainly a bunch of white moms, Karen's. right? Like yeah. that is, that's the people. And for in Portland, the fact that they have apparently 500 white moms who are willing to do this is amazing, I think. And that that the federal officers, I think last night, if they were going to do it, it would have happened last night, but they just didn't. And that is also a testament to how strong of an image it it would be if they could 
inspire it because the federal officers were like, no, we're not doing that. You know, <laughs> we know how this is going to go. I find it so weird. I don't know. It's, it's, it's very strange because like uh, it seems like Trump is doing everything to try and provoke these types of moments. And I think that yeah. he's just too stupid to understand that, like it, how bad it is. It is interesting. For, yeah. Thinking about it strategically. Like, do you guys think yeah. that? I don't know. I don't want to pivot to the election because I know that's, I mean, whatever, that's yeah. kind of low hanging fruit. But do you guys have feelings about how like liberals are seeing, might be seeing this? Or even like, you know, left-ish, like more, they're not left, but I don't know, like less conservative Republicans. What, what do you mean by things? liberal, though? Yeah. You mean like, sen- like, su- like suburban, suburban Democrat Hillary voters? Yeah. Yeah, okay. and maybe people um, slightly to the right of that as well. Like, how do you think this is all looking to them? Well, I, I don't know. I Portland and Seattle, right, as, t- as targets for Trump are, like, obvious targets in the sense that he can portray them as the radical fringe part of the country. Mm-hmm. So I guess it kind of is a test of, like, what, what part of the country do you live in and how do you feel about Portland and Seattle or, you know, these these places Chicago. that pe- most people... Well, Chicago is different. Yeah, right? Chicago, it's kind of interesting. It's a lot more mixed. Um, but I think Trump's strategy, again, is to create a conspiratorial sense that there's these fringe extreme elements these parts of the country you've never been to mm-hmm. but or you know you've seen in like portlandia tv shows <laughs> yeah that uh they live a, they're like weird and you know they have anarchist lifestyles out there and that's the real yeah. problem so i don't know maybe it's an appeal to his because he's not going to win those states right sure yeah his it's about yeah, like how do, the, how do the midwesterners react to this they're also very white very right? white so yeah. that's the part that's interesting to me which is that usually what trump would do is vilify black people mm-hmm. like or black Mexicans, protesters yeah. <laughs> yeah, or like any minority, and you know, like I think that the fact that these protests are so white, and um, every image you see is of white people. Right. And did I tell you my story about being at alt right rally in Portland? No. Okay, so I went to this alt right versus Antifa rally for Vice, oh, of course, because you know my job was to go there and just like film them fighting and just kind of run away from tear gas. It's my job for a couple of years. <laughs> it paid well. <laughs> I met a lot of interesting people. But, uh, but so I went to this thing and there was a, there was a group of uh, alt-right guys. And you know what? They're surprisingly diverse. A couple Hapa kids, which we don't have to talk about. Yeah, but like, a uh, you know, like yeah. a, couple, a couple of Mexican kids, a couple of black kids, and, uh, wow. and then like four, four white kids, mm-hmm. right? Like this was like a it was like they had co- it's almost like they were like a college diversity ad for the alt-right <laughs> oh my god that's yeah, so horrifying was, how did you know they, they were alt-right because they were standing with alt-right people they were they were waving Kekistan flags yeah. like they're quite literally as alt-right as, they're wearing Trump hats okay. anyway wow. so um, there are all these counter-protests around the alt-right rally which all happens in this like downtown square in Portland which you know I'm sure you guys both know of it's like where the stupid Apple store is <laughs> and um, and so then this Black Lives Matter group is protesting them across the street. Mm-hmm. And at some point, one of the Mexican kids in the alt-right group realizes that every single person in the Black Lives Matter cohort is Oh, white. my God. And, and the, they start screaming, we're more diverse than you. Wow. We're more diverse <laughs> than you, like, at them. And oh I lost God. it. I, like, started laughing my ass <laughs> off because it was so funny. And it was just that like, so I don't know. I had such insane. an ironic distance from this sort of thing because I, I would see the all right kids and I'd be like, these are all trolls. You know, they're internet oh trolls. God. Like, they're not serious about it. 
And then you see like the promise keepers and the promise keepers are a little bit scary because they're armed, you know, uh -huh. or the oath keepers. I'm sorry, whatever yeah, they're called, like, like the, 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 um, yeah, the oath keepers. Like, and so they're there to like do security for free speech or something like that. But it was really funny to see, wow, you know, because it was the most Portland thing possible. And they were the, all the all the people on the other side in the Black Lives Matter crowd were like, "No, you're not." And I was like, "They, all, you know, they have a point here. <laughs> they are clearly more diverse <laughs> oh my than God, you that's are." Horrifying. Does it? Does do, do you think that? Well, I this is something that I think about a lot, though, which is like the the flashpoints in this, like after the first wave had been in Seattle and Portland. I find that to be so interesting because they're both cities that have almost no black people. Mm -hmm especially Portland. Portland is the whitest city in America, yeah. you know, and you feel it when you're in Portland. Yeah. Like I, I live in Portland for six months and I went to like a, I would go meet my friend at a bar in Southeast and I, just, I never saw someone who wasn't white, you yeah. know, and I, I was just like, this is weird. Yeah. You know, it is weird. It is, I've lived in very white places, mm -hmm. including Berkeley, which is pretty white. There's no place I go to where there's, where every single person is white, yeah. you know? Portland, that's a norm. So, like, is there something strange about all this happening in, in Portland and Seattle? Like, do you have any theories about why it is? Well, the history of uh, the history of the state of Oregon right, is that they had a bunch of laws, much more so than like Washington State had them as well, but they eventually like relaxed them. But Oregon was like they had all these laws that said like only white people can move here, right? And it was like a place yeah. for white people in the East Coast and the Midwest to escape to in the 19th century. So that's like been in there in the culture forever, I think. Uh, but I do think, like, if you like look beyond skin color, right? There, there are different type of um, mentality out there. Right? It's a frontier, escape the rest of the world. You have um, stories of like white militia, basically outside of Portland, the once like big city. Um, my impression is like you're just you're just very quickly in like white militia land, um, and it's different than like the rest of the country, mm. where if you have I don't know, like like you said, like where what what are the comparably monochromatic parts of the country are you saying like there is no comparison between portland, no, portland is literally the whitest yeah by most metrics is the whitest city in america yeah i think yeah and C seattle is extremely white too. it is like if you take asians if you just count asians as white which is i guess what we're doing now <laughs> you know uh then um then then seattle's extreme just as white right like seattle i think is 20 percent asian and then six percent black yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and bad. everyone else is basically white. Uh, Tammy, what were you well, going to say? Gonna, I was going to say that I think you guys are right that these are sort of like test cases, right, in some ways for Trump or easy targets for Trump. But on, but I also want to, I also think there's probably a large segment of liberals in Portland and Seattle who are happy the federal troops came in. Oh, no, but yeah. I, I'm, what I'm asking is, I 100% I agree with that. What I'm asking is, why do you think the protests kept going in Seattle um, and Portland in a way that they weren't in other I places? See, yeah. Like, because they definitely, you know, Seattle really has never stopped. Right. And you see these tweets from time to time being like, New York never stopped. But come on, like, New York has stopped in a way that Portland and Seattle haven't really, mm -hmm. you know? And my question is like, okay, I think there's a very easy explanation at the start, which is that Portland Police Bureau is fucking crazy. Right. You know, like I, like I went to that alt-right versus, I've been to two of those things. Like I went to two protests in Portland. One of them, I basically got arrested, you know, as a journalist. Oh, man. And the first one that I went to, like there is, I was like, these kids are weigh 80 pounds. I'm pretty sure I personally could beat up <laughs> all these alt-right kids. Seriously, like they would not get anywhere close to me. I'm not a particularly tough guy. You know, <laughs> and then you have all these Antifa kids. You have like 300 Antifa kids who are 
swearing and you know wearing black and they're 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 young as well mm -hmm. right and then you have like the old sharps or whoever who are there too and for the cops there's like 300 cops in full riot gear Jesus. like bubble vest helmet batons everything and just like it's like this is so excessive you know yeah. you're guarding these like these twerps from like you know from these people just stand put up a barricade and stand by it you know like if they fight which they're going to do you know yeah. just like push them in a place where they can fight and just let them punch each other yeah. right. like you don't need to like that's what they came here for they came here to punch each other like uh you don't need to to put out this show of force yeah. and by putting out the show of force and firing off tear gas you've escalated every single thing yeah. right and so i think part of it is that if 50 people in Portland are always going to get suppressed pretty brutally and that's going to keep it going. But I also, I don't know, I was wondering if you, do you think that there's something about sort of unfettered white wokeness that um, <laughs> without actually having to deal with black people or Latino people or Asian people or any people of color, quote unquote, that, that actually is of strong force? Because that, that's oh my sort gosh, of my hot funny. take on this. Well, you do. <laughs> you mean... Yeah, they're all they're completely all completely unchecked, completely unchecked white woke, <laughs> white woke feeling is like a powerful force. I think that's hilarious. I mean, you're right that like, both Seattle and Portland are these extremely white places that have like particularly brutal police departments. Like Seattle's has been under federal supervision, right, for God knows how long. Yeah. Um, I think there are also places that have like going back to Andy's point, like a kind of like gutter punk Antifa culture that's very deep. Yeah. Like, those networks are deep, and those are a lot of the kids who, you know, keep yeah. occupations going. Yeah. And I think... I would say yeah, Tammy, ex explain more about that, yeah. because I, that, that's my... Yeah, tell, tell us a little more sure, about that. Sure, I mean, that, I'm not an expert on this at all, but, you know... Because you're listening to Sarah McLaughlin. Right, and exactly. And, <laughs> and I was taking, and like, not violin minor lessons. Threat. But, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> um, in Seattle... So, like... Gutter punk is like kind of a derogatory term, but I think it's used like pretty broadly in Seattle to describe like kind of like punkish, kind of often like, you know, sort of marginally homeless or homeless young people who are very anti establishment and who have networks yeah. of kind of like left thinking and just like anti conformist, anti authoritarian thinking. And there's some overlaps between, I would say, that community, which has existed since like the 70s and 80s here. Um, and Antifa, which is, a, you know, not a group, obviously, but a descriptor, a descriptor that we've been using much more recently to talk about people who basically have those politics, too, but are applying them in, like, a more, like, earnestly political way, I guess. I mean, you guys should yeah. edit this because I'm sure you have different takes. But um, and I but I would say that that, like, alternative culture, despite the Amazonification of Seattle, has persisted. And when you look at the activists oh, who yeah. come out you know, against homeless sweeps and all of the cruel policies that have occurred here, like those people are there. So I, you know, I have to, I have to mm -hmm. thank them for that. And I think they were keeping chop yeah. going. They're the people who were turning out in yep. Portland. What do you guys think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing to keep in mind, like you talk about the demographics in terms of race, but the other thing is just, there just are not a lot of people in Washington state or Oregon. And I think the ethos from the beginning whether right or left is we're going here to escape other people and the crowdedness and the busyness of a New York or a Chicago or the rest of the country, right? A, they're highly, until recently, I think Seattle obviously is pretty dense these days. But for the most part, these states have very few people. And I think that ethos can be translated into either sort of frontiersmen, like I'm going to build a cabin and live 
and away from the government, they're not going to tax me. Or it could also be translated into a kind of a leftist politics of anarchism that you know Tamiya is just mentioning. And the, mm-hmm. the vibe, I, I think I mentioned this before, the vibe I always got in the Northwest wasn't so much you know, engaged in these like dense intellectual debates about, you know, capitalism and civilization. It's more like just anarchism. It's like this, the problem yeah. yeah. is the state. That's fair. The enemy yeah. is the state, okay. right? And so being anti-police is, I think, comes very naturally to them as opposed to, and it doesn't necessarily have to manifest in some sort of historically informed exegesis on race in America, mm-hmm. right? But that population has been almost entirely wiped out by the wealth of Seattle and Portland's core, you know? Well, that was, that was my other question in have Seattle. Have they, though? I, I don't think, think so. they have, though. I think... More than like, less so, uh, I met a lot of them when I was doing my, you know, uh, shock and awe, ridiculous reporting on <laughs> the alt-right versus the versus Antifa stuff. Like, I, Tammy, I think your explanation is the right one, in my opinion, and it's one that I don't see very much, and I think it's one that... The reason we don't see it very much is because you have to sort of live there or know that but like the reason why this stuff keeps going is because there's all you need is about 100 people or 50 people to keep going out every single night and if you have 50 to 100 people who are organized through old networks of like shark andy you're that i'm picking up you like whatever you're doing with your hand on the mic um if you uh <laughs> i'm not editing that out either but like, uh, <laughs> if you have 50 like so in portland for example this stuff started because that you had a very strong like skinheads against racial prejudice group like the sharks Uh right and they started a lot of that was organized in the 90s around the murder of an ethiopian kid by by skinheads right some ethiopian kid in uh like north whatever quadrant of the city northeast is that where is that where a lot of the immigrants live uh was not not northeast i think it's like southwest or something was killed by the uh was killed by white supremacists and so then you have that group wow. starting skinheads against racial prejudice that leads to like more groups starting around Antifa. You know, when Trump gets elected, more kids come out under that banner. And then mm-hmm. at some point you have about 200 kids who are always down to go out and like cause mayhem. And they're, you're right, Tammy, that their found foundational ethos is not socialism. It's not anti-racism. It's just anarchism. Right. And fighting the cops. They love to fight the cops. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, they fight the cops every May Day, you know, right. like so. You have that in Seattle and Portland. Yeah. And so this is like Christmas for those people. <laughs> and I think that, that the thing that gets happens with the, the wrong moral equivalence that happens is that we're so pious about protests in this country that we don't see those people as our friends, yeah. right? If we are honest about who they are, then, then there's a tendency that we think that we have to disavow them because, well, they're not about Black Lives Matter. They're not about George Floyd. But they are because they're the people who are keeping the protests going mm. single-handedly. Mm-hmm. Their stuff is what brings out the federal troops, right? The federal troops don't come out if these people aren't tearing down that fence every single day. And so, uh, I don't know. I, th- I think you're right. I think it's all about protest infrastructure in that city. Okay, speaking of which, switching gears, there is an article by Ross Douthat. In, is that how you pronounce it? I think so. Do that? Douthat, right? It's yeah. Douthat. He is a columnist for the New York Times. Uh, I actually find him to be the most interesting columnist other than Jamel Bowie. Those are the two that mm. I like. And Ross, of course, is, I don't know, I'm sure everyone knows this is a, you know, he's a Catholic conservative, but he does make interesting points, I think. And he's a good writer, yeah, which, you know, I, that's true. as I've told Tammy and Andy many times, I have a giant tent for people who are good writers where they can be <laughs> completely flawed and I think all their politics sucks, but I'll, I'll have like a, begrudging light for them so Ross is in that in that uh, 
realm. So he wrote a piece about uh, white fragility, and he, it's called the white, real white fragility. There's one part in this that I am interested that uh, I think that we should talk about. I'm going to read from it right here, which is, uh, having run this gauntlet, our meritocrats graduate into a big city ecosystem where the price of adult goods like schools and housing has been bid up dramatically, while important cultural industries, especially academy and journalism, supply fewer jobs even in good economic times. And they live half in these crowded, overcompetitive worlds and half on the internet, which has extended the competition for status almost infinitely and weakened some of the normal ways that local prestige might compensate for disappointing income. These stresses have exposed the thinness of meritocracy as a culture, a Hogwarts with SATs instead of magic, <laughs> a secular substitute for older forms of community, tradition, or religion. For instance, it was, for instance, it was the frequent boast of Obama-era liberalism that it had restored certain bourgeois virtues, delayed childbearing, stable marriage without requiring anything <laughs> so anachronistic as Christianity or courtship rituals, blah, 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 blah. Let's go to the end, which is, and this is the part that's like interesting to me, which is that, um, that, that he is saying that like the, that the new sort of religious anti-racism that he characterizes as Robin D'Angelo is uh, part of this realization by white meritocrats that they're losing to Asians, right? <laughs> that they can work this hard and they're still gonna lose to Asians. And that at that point they give up the ghost and they just say, well, let's just get rid of all of this, you know? And all we have to do is sort of give small concessions to black people and then we can, you know, keep these Asians at bay and stay on top. <laughs> what, what do you think of this, this theory? Andy, <laughs> Andy, you go. He did say that. I think that's right. Yeah, that's definitely it. No, no, he did say that. I know, I know. He doesn't have a lot. He <laughs> the part a... that I didn't quote. From yeah, the, quote, it, he, it, we'll put, quote we'll put it. A link, <laughs> we'll put a link to it, but he does say that, right? He does have a he line says, for, for, for instance, once you dismiss the SAT as just a tool of white supremacy, <laughs> then it gets easier for elite schools to justify excluding the Asian-American students whose standardized test scores keep mm. climbing while white scores relatively stay relatively flat. Or again, if you induce inner-city charter schools to disavow their previous stress on hard work and discipline and meritocratic ambition because those are racist too, well, then their minority graduates might become less competitive with your own kids in the college admissions race as well. He does say it. He just flat out says it. Okay, so what do we think? This is a spicy take this from Ross, spicy. which is why I like Ross. But, like, uh, Andy, what do you think about this? You have very deep thoughts on the SAT. <laughs> I don't want to reveal, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to force you to re reveal them on the show. I just, I, I've, I told you guys, I can't, I'm just too biased about the SAT because I did uh, stereotypically dedicate so much of my high school life to doing well on it and I do think like you can do well on it and you know like I've always thought like I don't know this is probably overly reductive and I'm overlooking all, a lot of my own biases but like my parents don't speak English very well and eventually I got a good verbal score by working you know really hard at it so I do kind of think like yeah if you just and I didn't like pay for any classes either and I so I do kind of think like yeah like the SAT is is hackable and you don't I had, I had a lot of privileges, for sure, but I also kind of think, like, um, I don't know. And, like, math, I, I kind of think math is important. I don't, I don't, and I, and I do think there is, like, a tendency among um, liberals or humanists or whatever to, like, to, like, look down on math for some reason and, like, say, like, we shouldn't care so much about math skills. I don't know. It's, it's weird. I think the anti-SAT stuff is weird to me. And as I said before... <laughs> I think like if you replace the SAT with soft stuff, I think that does only help the legacy students more. 
Uh-huh. So I, I think I'm kind of an outlier among the left liberals. Okay, well, let, let's talk about some hard things in this article so I don't mischaracterize it, or so I'm not accused of mischaracterizing <laughs> it when I wasn't. The, uh, what, what Ross Dazit says is that, um, and this is, these are things that have been sort of brought up by the culture warriors, that uh, what, if you look at what Robin D'Angelo or what a lot of these professional sort of diversity trainers say, which is that they say things like uh, perfectionism or worship of the written word or emphasis on the scientific method or delayed gratification are features of toxic whiteness, right? And so it's this idea that the things that do well in a meritocracy are just things that are white. And, mm-hmm. and I think math, Andy, as you said, is yeah. probably one of those things that can get listed on on there. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like, I, I, like first, I don't, I, I always thought that this is a, gross mischaracterization of what these people say but it is sort of what these people say you know yeah. and so it, it's an interesting question Tammy what do you think do you think that white people are just dropping this stuff and becoming <laughs> woke so that Asians don't take their spots at Harvard <laughs> I think Raz Dathet is he pulls out the most kind of liberal well to do cynical parts of like movements or trends and digs into what's going on there in a way I think that's illuminating. Like, I'm sure this is true that in the subconscious or maybe, you know, just above that of some of these white liberals, something like this is operating. But it's not just a recognition that they're losing to Asians, as it were. (laughs) I think it's a recognition that the economy is kind of fucked for everybody. Yeah. You know? But like Andy was pointing out another piece he recently wrote about how like Bernie's sort of like class, like universalist socialist class-based program um, has maybe lost out to, you know, a kind of like race virtue signaling platform that is like the liberal kind of crust layer of the defund the police movement. Um, So again, I think in both of those pieces, he's picking out like one stratum of a thing and then like, you know, dissecting it in a way that that reveals something, but I just think it's a pretty selective story. Or maybe I'm just trying to be too optimistic about like what's going on in white people's minds, yeah. but I can't, I, I, I guess I refuse to believe that this is all that's happening with the white liberal participation. Oh yeah, right? I don't think so I mean, either, maybe but I, not and I don't think, that, yeah. I don't think he would, he says it's subconscious, right. you know, that nobody right, right, thinks right. it's subconscious yeah. and that in that way it is deep but it is also marginal in some yeah, ways right sure. that maybe mm-hmm. it is the animating part but that people that the way that people justify their actions also matter right, right? and that that we shouldn't discount all of them yeah but yeah. that that maybe because like i think about this too where it's just like all right well you have the economy coming up and andy as a parent you can sort of uh, reflect on this with me which is that if you could say that like my child and you know pretend forget that we're both like leftists here but let's say put yourself <laughs> in the Put yourself in the position of like, you know, like, a, I don't know, like some Asian person who's like went to uh, Princeton or whatever and wants to work at a bank. <laughs> and we can say that uh, our kid has a 20% chance of replicating our privilege and actually improving on it, right? Only. Whereas before it was probably an 80% chance or 70% of that, right? Now that chance is reduced down to 20%. Or we can pick a world in which they will not they will fall well short of our privilege and our wealth but they will at least be they have a hundred percent chance of having like a comfortable life and not falling off off of out of society hmm. which ha, you know they had some chance of doing before isn't isn't that more of a choice now 
for a lot of people. Like, is, is that what's animating it? Like, what, that the like, idea that meritocracy is not going to work for them, like Tammy was saying, that the meritocracy and the privileges that, that make the meritocracy false are now a little bit more distant because, you know, there's no economic future where they can be, you know, where the, where the divisions will matter as much. Yeah. Um, wait, so what's the choice? Is it, sorry, I, your example is pretty long. Well, you can just pick, like, do you want your kid to have a 20% chance of, like, being extremely privileged or, uh, oh, and, <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, 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 you know, zero chance of being extremely pri- privileged, but, like, 100% chance or, like, 60% chance of, like, being okay. So you're saying that by reject, the white fragility cult is about lowering expectations and just being okay with this rather than dealing with the high risk, um... The high risk of engaging in these quote Well, that's what, Tammy, do you want to explain it to Andy? Because <laughs> 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 maybe I explained it wrong. Well, explain your point to Andy. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's something unstable in the article because at some point he seems to only be talking about what's affecting to, like, the most white, yeah. the most elite whites at right. the most elite institutions. And at other times he seems to be making a more generalized point about white liberalism. Right. Yeah. So I think yeah. that may, is maybe part of, like, the struggle in our conversation. But... You know, I think if we take, I think it's right to take seriously a claim that like even elites who should have no real problem are feeling besieged by something, you know, right. and right. Then, yeah. the, then the race, then the American racist subconscious comes in and is like, okay, then we can like pit the Asians and blacks against each other. Yeah. But of course, yeah. the yeah. what we should really be doing is saying like, holy shit, like every structure we've constructed around meritocracy and capitalism is so broken that no one can make yeah. it. You know? But I think what's what's yeah. wrong, of course, is that like in these most elite institutions and in the spaces that he's talking about in this article, like there is still going to be like a set number of seats for whites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Oh, and sure. that's like, like, that ultimately is like what I think undermines this kind of, th- his even his analysis, right? Because yeah. like, even this illusion of like losing is, you know, that, I mean, it's, it isn't actually going to produce any changes unless we like yeah. do something much more radical. And I think the structure of his argument is something like things used to be good and now they've gotten worse. Yeah. Right. Which raises this question of did things used to be good? Did things were things, were things good? Well, um, things are good for, for like white legacy kids at heart. Right. I think but that's what he's saying. Uh, yeah. Through the process of the article, I think he's also pointing out that all along they were actually... Uh, bad for everyone else and now that white people have to yeah. Yeah, right. people have to suffer the same yeah. Yeah. injustices that's why they want to tear down the system but then is the structure of his argument nostalgic is it romantic mm-hmm. in saying we should kind of go back to how things were in the 50s um because well that's his take always yeah he's constantly nostalgic yeah. But uh, but like well like so let, let's t- let's go to Portland then and think about it in that mm-hmm. way right which is that uh, this is like a group think session on this <laughs> yeah, podcast this, right now which I think questions. is fine but yeah. like we have a uh, the thing that was like somebody yesterday tweeted like and I found it an interesting thought which is that what is happening in Portland is that white people middle class white people are understanding that the police at this point are so empowered by Trump mm-hmm. and the, this whatever this federal paramilitary goon squad is is so empowered that they're being treated by like black people are treated by the police and so they're protesting in the way that black people are being Mm -hmm. are 
are being protested by the police, and that the country sucks so bad that even middle-class white people are now living under the conditions yeah. of, that black people usually live under. Mm-hmm. I actually think that that's right, you mm-hmm. know, in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. And I think that that was that the, the most radicalizing thing that happened during these protests is, A, the burning of the Minnesota Police Department, right, which I think totally. it was like a revenu- revolutionary act that caused the cops to go crazy across the country. Mm-hmm. And that when the cops went crazy, then you saw like white women being beaten, like you yeah. know, like white college students being mm. beaten, like the people in Philadelphia who are huddled on, on a highway overpass just being repeatedly tear gassed yeah. for no reason. Um, and you saw reporters that, get beaten. Yeah. Yeah, you said got reporters get beaten. Like last night, like that, like we were talking about the guy at the Times getting punched by a federal officer. Like, what are you doing? Yeah. You know. Um, and uh, like th- this is not one of these live streamers who is like a journalist who's like going up and trying to like you know get in the face of police officers. I'm sure he's not, right? Mm-hmm. Like so, um, you have you have all this going on, and I, I think that that's why Ross's article is interesting to me was because it just asks yeah. this question of like, yeah. well, now are white people sort of in this status thing too, where we've all lost so much yeah. status and the right. oligarchy is so complete, mm-hmm. you know, where like uh, Jeff Bezos keeps getting richer. Yeah. And the billionaire class keeps getting richer, and everyone else now is in this sort of reduced state. Yeah. And then my follow-up question is like, are these the conditions for revolution? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because that, <laughs> because under many people's theories, this is right. Yeah. No. It, like this. Yeah. I think it's, it's a like reflection. when white people can see themselves in the struggles yeah. of black people is when there will be revolution. Yeah. I mean, Andy, go ahead. I'm I don't sorry. Know if it's going to be a socialist revolution, or whatever. But I do think that what's happening in Portland what's happening in Ross's article. I think all of it is a reflection of another type of revolution, right? The, the bad kind of things getting much worse and the system falling apart. And that does, it does seem like we're undergoing a transition right now. And that's why I kind of think like, you know, earlier you guys were talking about are these protests dying or not? I don't know, we'll see. Mm-hmm. I, but I'm kind of in this, you know, constant state of like shock at what's happening every day. And yeah. I'm sort of more, much more of a sort of wait and see attitude like we who can predict what's going to happen next right now because it seems like everything is falling apart you know like yeah I'm thinking about like higher education is falling apart but you know I mean I guess that's what Ross is also thinking about but you know undermining under undergirding a lot of these protests is people's sense of you know widening inequality totally um um, and like police going nuts and Trump is fucking president. Like, yeah. Well, and literal know, so mass death, right? 150,000 yeah, people are dead. Exactly. So it does seem like all the thing that connects all this stuff that's really confusing is that we are undergoing the, some sort of collapse of whatever was before. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I guess the open question is like, what's the risk? Is the response going to be a good or a bad one? You know? Um, but I, I think to say like, I don't think it's a question whether or not we're having a revolution. We are having a revolution. It's just, oh yeah, you know, from the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this right. is. I mean, the, the changes that have happened in the last three months have outpaced the changes that happened in any era except post nine eleven. But it, I've certainly outpaced post nine eleven as well, right? Like, and it's just hard because it's not stuff that's tangible. Like, there's no Patriot Act or anything like yeah. that, right? But um, the ways in which people's trust in societal structures has completely disappeared is certainly going to lead to mass change. And I don't know. I mean, um, I don't know. This is, this will be our last amazing segue. I, this one, I, I think I'm nailing Tammy, which is that you wrote about something very similar recently, right? Which is about how when the coronavirus first hit and you thought, 
you kept reading stuff about how the world was getting was going to get smaller because of this, right? How the world was going to become more provincial and 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 difficult that you sort of retreated into reporting and looking into Asia. So can you tell me tell, tell us about this article that's out today, um, I think, or yesterday, right? Um, and uh, yeah, tell us about what you wrote. Sure. Yeah, I wrote a piece in CJR that came out today that in Columbia Journalism Review for people who don't read it, that is kind of a love letter to our podcast, honestly, <laughs> because it was <laughs> reported, um, it was reported basically parallel to kind of when we started, like I think I had just started it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea of it is kind of a profile of three transnational Asian magazines, two of which we featured on the show through yeah, Andy's yep. interview with Brian Hugh of New Bloom and then our segment with Wilfred Chan of Lausanne. Um, the idea being that you know, the project of that Jay and Andy that, that that we're engaged in, I think here is to say, like, we need to pay attention to Asia. We need to pay attention to the distance between Asia and the West. Um, and the pandemic made that clearer <laughs> than ever. Um, but that mm-hmm. we need to do that in a way that gets away from any sort of nationalistic thinking on either end. Um, yeah. And so we need to get away from our American arrogance. But we also... Um, there's no reason to embrace a Chinese arrogance as an alternative. Um, yeah. And that we need to recognize that in a lot of ways, like we are living in a failed state. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And that other countries might offer alternatives to that. You know? The thing that jumped out to me reading it, Tammy, and I, you know, I really liked it, was that you said that these groups are not post-colonial. They are more internationalist. Post-colonial is kind of a term of art. I don't know if all of our listeners know what that means. What do you what, what did you mean by that line? <laughs> I'm probably not using it in a scholarly way here. No, I think you do. I think you but, use it uh, a lot, but in a way that I like. <laughs> and he's like, do you mean first wave post-colonial? I know. I'm like sweating now because I'm like, fuck, I have to like get out some like Derrida or first some question. shit. Um, I, what I meant by that is I think there's a post there's a certain post-colonial thinking like to take it very literally like let's think about that moment of decolonization in like the 60s and 70s um where then states newly independent states became very nationalistic and very Uh sort of reactive and i think i'm interested and i think we're interested in something that's more nuanced than that that is saying we don't need to replicate the structures that made us colonies in the first place we can find something yeah. more liberatory. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that, yeah, post-colonialism is this term of art that's in the academy, but I think it dovetails with what a lot of us, you know, outside the academy and also in your interview with um, Margot Ozawa. I'm sorry, I forgot her last Yeah, name. Margot Ozawa-Ray. Ozawa-Ray. We're just talking about identity politics, right? This idea of um, privileging the experience of a sort of in-group at the exclusion of kind of considering outside voices or internationalist perspectives. So I thought that was actually like, to me, that kind of marks a generational shift mm-hmm. um, that you talk about in your article that for maybe for a lot of Asian Americans through the 70s, 80s, 90s, basically our parents' generation, we came to, they came to this country to assimilate. And I don't know about your parent, your guys' parents, but like my parents could never have imagined that I would grow up and be like, so what's going on in Asia? And like... <laughs> try to learn Mandarin and go back and, and live there for a while. Like they, I think that zero anticipation that that would have happened. And um, I've had like fights with them about this, but I've Not also, sure. I think I understand as a generational shift. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. And I think that 
that is different than people who are 10, 20, 30 years older than us who would see the world as a collection of discrete nation states and you know bounded by political borders, um, which would allow for something like a post-colonial identity politics to thrive. Mm, right? Like mm-hmm. the experience of our people is different than your people is different than your people. Right. Um, so I thought that was that was really striking to me that generational argument, and you know because you're talking about people who are young. That's that was the other Very thing young, that's yeah. kind of striking about this article. Jay, I recently yeah. met your dad. And, oh, um, yeah, yeah, Tammy met my I, parents. I met Jay's parents. They're really great. Um, but, Jay, actually, your dad during our meeting brought this up, that he finds it baffling that people like you would want to be interested and to want to go to Korea, want to have a relationship with Asia. Has he talked with you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Tam, like, Andy, that's similar. And, you know, interesting, my parents live, like, literally a ferry ride away from where Andy grew up. Like, you get yeah. I mean, how far were you from the ferry? Like, you're pretty close. Uh, I could run there. It's like four or five miles. You uh, could run there, yeah. right? So, and then you could hop on a ferry and run to my parents' yeah. house. So, like, uh, this is um, the Ivers of Mukilteo, if any of my friends from high school are listening. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that place is great. Every time I go there, I stop and get a chowder and some fries, <laughs> and I sit in the car and I eat it, and then I feel extremely fat afterwards. But, uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, that's that's true, Tammy. And you know, I'm 40, right? And I, my parents are extremely assimilation driven, yeah. as I'm sure you noticed. But they, uh, but um, they are, yeah. I think that they don't get it, right? Because what they think about is like, well, why when we work to give you this life, right? And when you have all the, yeah, like your life has resulted in things that we couldn't even have imagined while we were raising Mm -hmm. you right like they they're like well maybe he'll be a lawyer but i don't think they would think (laughs) like well maybe he'll be like a dilettante that you know occasionally writes and (laughs) and does a (laughs) podcast (laughs) um that is a privilege that maybe they didn't understand like why would you want to go to a country that would be hostile towards you and that's the thing that i think that they that they that they're fixated on. And I find that Mm -hmm. fascinating because like for me, the fixation is with finding a connection to Korea, right? Right. With them, the fixation is what we know that you don't know is that there's no (laughs) connect, that you don't have a connection to Korea because you didn't grow up there. We know what Korea is like because we grew up there, but even we don't really know what Korea is like because we haven't been there for 40 years, Mm -hmm. you know? But you certainly don't know. Like, what are you going to do? You can barely read the language. You know, it's going to take you three weeks to learn, you know, to catch up to, like, speak the language. Like, other Koreans that you know can't speak a word of Korean, you know? <laughs> right. Like, uh, like what is, like, what are you guys even talking about? Like, and then, and then also there's a reason why they immigrated, right? Because right. they're North Korean refugees. They came to the South and they felt, like, isolated in the South because they're refugees from the North. And, you know, during the 80s, they're or 70s, I'm sorry, 70s, they're basically discriminated against as North, northern refugees, and they come over here. And so they, they don't have particularly great feelings about South right. Korea either, yeah. right? And so um, I think that, that that's interesting, though, because, like, there is a certain performance of our interests in uh, our home countries <laughs> and these internationalist yeah. things that is a little cosplay, you know? Like, they do have yeah. a point, you know? Like... There's no way. We yeah. can take Korean lessons forever. There's no point in our life, Tammy, where you and I are going to go there and that 99% of the people won't immediately be able for to sure. tell that, we're, that we grew up in the United States. Is right? true? Oh, yeah, for so. sure. I mean, yeah, yeah. like I would... I mean, Tammy's Korean is much better than mine. But, like, 
you know, Tammy is clearly grew up in the United States. Yeah. <laughs> For me, it's like no question. Tammy, <laughs> I mean, I say as I'm like, do you, can you guys see on Zoom how dark I am right now? Yeah, yeah. Basically, this is like the darkest. Jay's like backyard <laughs> farming. <laughs> has made him like, yeah. <laughs> look like a peasant farmer from some unidentified country. I spent like country. 10 hours. Yeah, exactly. I spent like 10 hours outside a day. Yeah. So, um, and, um, are most, I don't know what Korean, go ahead. Are most Korean immigrants from North Korea to South Korea. Is that the typical pipeline or is it just a, a mixture of North and South to the, to the, yeah, US? the first generation, mostly North Korean. Okay. Um, that's similar to North Taiwan. Koreans who went to the South. It's yeah. mainland Chinese who went to Taiwan. That's because mm-hmm. they had, they felt no loyalty to Taiwan or, you know, belonging, yeah. but yeah. they were much Tim, are your parents from North Korea? No, they're both from the South. Okay. Yeah, I mean, they're from they the South have, of South Korea? Yeah, or, no, just South Korea. <laughs> Do they speak with, like, Pusan accents? No, no, they're from, I mean, my dad's just from a couple hours south of Seoul, and my mom's from Seoul, so, uh, no, they're just from okay. regular northern South Korea, but, no, I mean, I, 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 I totally understand where your guys' parents are coming from, and I think the cosplay thing is right. I mean, I think the the like the like Brian and Wilfred are maybe more like us, but people that they organize with are have a more complicated identity because they're not quite Asian American. They're sort of floating in between. They are there's yeah. you know younger people, people quite different from us. I think are so bicultural and so perfectly yeah. bilingual, and and that's kind of yeah. interesting to me. I think that's charting a different kind of thinking around our connections. Yeah, yeah. that's like an immigration pattern for thing, sure. Right? Absolutely, where, where those yeah. people came. There's a group of people, uh, immigrants from China, I think mostly, but some from Korea too, where the kids came over when they were like 12, right? Because like their parents, and that those kids definitely have a different feeling. Or about people it, who I are think. not real, like traditional migrants who just float back and forth, or you know, yeah. who yep. went to an American school in you know Singapore or something. You know, so I think. Yeah. So yeah. Jay- Rich people. The super rich. <laughs> some, and some are the not. Most interna- and some not, you know. But the super rich are the most internationalist, I would say. Yeah, oh, yeah sure. but I think, yeah, I yeah. think there like isn't just If you went to, like, IB that. schools in five countries, right. then, like, you have an extremely sophisticated yeah. world. Oh, for sure. <laughs> but I think even aside from that, jealous like, upper class cosmopolitanism, there is, there is even, yeah. like, a working class cosmopolitanism that's just caused by different economic changes in their countries, yeah. you know? Right. For sure. So, yeah. Yeah. so, Jay, you say your dad thinks you're naive about going back to Korea, but I think vice versa, I think we might look at our parents and think they were not, they are naive or perhaps in denial about how easy it oh, is to assume. Sure. Well, that's, that's what I right, say. Too. For, yeah. yeah. Because that, for them, it's, it's an economic question, right? More than, so than for us. Meaning um, what, that as long as they have a good living, that they're happy, they don't really care about fitting in and, you know, being seen as one, uh, being seen as an average American. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because they have a cultural background that they are uh, that they understand intensely because they grew up in it. Right. And they rejected that in a way, and they came to the United States. Yeah. And but they still are made of that people. Right. Whereas we are not made of any people except for our parents and you know and and right. uh, and growing up here. So like it is very different. So I agree. Mm-hmm. I think that they're very naive about about how easy it is to fit in here. Yeah. And then you can see it. I'm sure that most Asian people have a relationship with their parents where their parents don't really understand some of these difficulties, right? But they're but then in some ways I think that they are right to say that maybe some of them go too far that they are to you know, we fixate them on on them too much and talk about like microaggressions and yeah, things yeah, like yeah. that, mm-hmm. right? 
where if your material conditions are basically where you're like upper middle class and you have a good job and you know then the microaggression stuff maybe it like maybe you shouldn't fixate on that stuff and you should appreciate what you have a little bit more but um but i don't know i i think that that's the tension right i, I don't know tim what do your parents think like do they want to go back to korea my parents hate it in korea <laughs> so like they they, <laughs> they refuse my parents have been back less than your parents i think my parents though feel very they feel uncomfortable there they do feel a, a, a psychic distance it's also yeah. because they yeah. didn't have privileges of education there and didn't get to fully live out their ambitions. And people judge you very harshly based on that there, you know, because yeah. it's so small and the markers are so clear. Um, yeah. I, I yeah. was going to ask you guys ask what you, you think about school. a critique that I often hear from parents of our generation, which is to say to people like us, only losers go back. <laughs> that's what my did my dad actually say right? those words to you because uh, he always says to okay me. now yeah. yeah so i can now say that yeah. yes including jason <laughs> this critique i heard but, <laughs> but literally it's like you know and i feel like the, i feel like some of the listeners are like piecing together a psychological profile of me right now i know i wasn't gonna say it was your dad but he's not the only one to say that that's a fairly common no thing, he's right? definitely not the only one to say <laughs> so that, what do you yeah. guys think of yeah. that um I don't know if I've heard that explicitly, but that's definitely, <laughs> it wouldn't surprise me if someone said that. Because I've also had that thought of like, if I went back to Asia, not that I'm a loser, but like my parents would be like, well, what the fuck was all this, what was the point of all this in the first place? You know? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, okay, Andy, I have a question for you. When Jeremy and Lynn went to go play basketball know, back in know, China, right? Oh, wait, really? <laughs> I think that's how they think about it. Yeah. Or like uh, <laughs> MC Jin went to Hong Kong to have a rap career yeah. when his like Rough Riders contract didn't come oh. out right yeah. that's the way they think about it they think yeah, about it exactly. like you couldn't make it in america so you had to go be like this novelty act of like the american asian oh, i thought you were gonna ask in, me in asia about Germany. I was like yeah i was like disappointed that he went to yeah you, <laughs> you were, you were disappointed. disappointed right i thought so too i was like just stick it don't go back to china like stick it out and try and make it on a team and scrap back yeah. here in the united states <laughs> in the nba why would you want to go be like a star in china you loser oh man we're just as bad then, is huh? pretty, it's pretty deeply embedded um i don't know i i, I feel that way all the time um yeah. feel what? and i I don't know. I just feel resentment towards people who go back and try and have careers. Really? And I'm sure it's partly because of that. Mm. Yeah. And I do think in some ways if I went there and I was like the guy who, in Korea who was writing articles about Korea for like fancy magazines mm-hmm. and that was my job, I would feel a deep sense of failure and disappointment. Oh, wow. Really. Okay. Because I would just be like... But don't you feel like... Yeah, because I just... I was like, I couldn't make it on, you know... So now I'm like this niche specialist guy. I see. And so I, I feel that. Maybe it's, you know, our podcast, as Tammy and I have said, should be actually titled Internalized Racism. <laughs> but, you know, we're working through it. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're, I, we're working through our traumas together. I get that for sure. And, uh, yeah, I mean, in different ways, that's probably shaped the way I've thought about intellectual and academic stuff too. But at the same time, I also kind of wonder if that's uh, – what's the word, not anachronistic, but sort of antiquated in the sense that yeah. that sort of um, looking down upon Asia as not, not a as a place that's not worth going, that might have been something we got from our parents' generation who wanted to escape it. But, you know, you, you go back, oh, as, yeah. as you talked about in your yeah. article, Tammy, like you go back to East Asia now and it's like just as rich, probably functions way, I mean, functions way better, <laughs> yeah. more modern, in more terms of virus, yeah. sophisticated in a lot of ways, right? Obviously, you know, it's not perfect, but mm-hmm. um, it's different. The choice is different. You can, you could yeah. go back and probably have materially 
a very similar life. Um, I'm, I think I'm just too assimilated. I'm too much of a banana to, <laughs> to, to, to spend my entire life back in Asia. Yeah. But month, months at a time, I'm, I can be pretty happy for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, because my, my dad's, uh, not to like turn this all into like a <laughs> question about like our own personal psychology, but you know, like his point was, this, and I, I look, I swear I'll swing it back to what we were talking about, but his point was essentially that I would feel more like an outsider there than I would here, mm-hmm. you know? And that is true in the sense that I don't often feel like an outsider here, especially in the places where yeah. I live. Like, you know, I live in Berkeley. Like, what am I, you know, everyone, there's cities like 25% Asian yeah. and like 90% you know, like white liberal, you know, right. and, and like my kid who is like half Jewish, half Korean is like basically the majority of the kids <laughs> in the school here, you know, it's like the most, the highest population, right? So, um, or like half Asian. And so, um, and in Korea, I certainly would feel out of place all the time, but like, I don't know. I, the thing that I was telling him was I was just like, well, I'll just like hang out with international people at the, at the university mm. or something like that. And it'll be fine. Um, but I don't know. I think he's right in the sense now I don't, I have no desire at all to go back to Korea. It lasted for like a month, you know? And, um, now I feel very nationalistic about staying here in a way, but <laughs> I Because of that uprising. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think like the country will be better because of the uprisings yeah. that have happened here. And so if that hadn't happened, I would have been much more despondent about it. But now I feel like it's our duty as people who were raised here to fight for, to make this country better. Totally. And I get actually really annoyed at people who are in other countries right now. Like, <laughs> what are you doing? You know, <laughs> this is the time, you know, this is the time we can do it. Yeah. Um, my, I, the, the, the long, this is a long way of asking the question, which I think is the real question underneath all this is that like, when we project ourselves, and I think that's something that you wrote about, in the peace team that I found interesting and actually really fascinating. So when we protect ourselves as Asian Americans onto Asia, when we become interested in Asia, are we just seeing a projection of Asian America onto Asia? Like an idealized version of Asian America onto Asia. And uh, the example I'll use is like, you know, the way that we look at like, like root for like Korean sports athletes or something like mm-hmm. that during the Olympics or something like that. The vision that we have of those people in our heads are not are of Asian Americans transposed onto those people, right? Mm-hmm. Like we see ourselves in those people, but those people are distinctly Korean and part of like a, a massively abusive Korean like sports training <laughs> program that we would not approve of, you know? But we still root for them without any of that guilt, right? Um, it's interesting to me because I think what we're doing is we're sort of trying to figure out our own Asian Americanness through Asia, and so in that some ways we're doing the same thing, right? Like there isn't an actual internationalist aspect mm. to it. It is just transposed onto the, the mirage of, of internationalism. Andy, do you think your career, entire career <laughs> as a historian has been a fraud because of this? <laughs> no, I, think you're, I think I definitely thought about very early on that in terms of the, your dad accusing you of wanting to cosplay, I became very aware early on that I probably had those impulses like, oh, I'm going to like become whole again and go back to the homeland. And then very early on, decided I need to be honest about who I am, mm-hmm. what I am, but also what I'm not, and my own limitations there. Um, and, you know, like, I can't, like you said, I'll never convince or fool anyone that I'm, I was born there. Um, I think once you're honest with yourself, it's a lot better. And I, I, and I don't think you have to be so cynical as to think that there is zero connection 
between yeah. right yourself and the I tend to think of you know I think this this is a problematic word but I still use it diaspora which I know is like a nationalistic term but I do think like it's one that allows you to feel like you're part of something without having to get uh, you know so worried about like citizenship and mm-hmm. how much you lived here or there I just think the ability to like go up to someone in China or Taiwan or in the US and just kind of have some sort of shared understanding or shared language to talk to is really powerful um, but you know you don't want to get too wrapped up into it and you don't want to yeah. start getting carried away into like nationalism and sort of biological sense of solidarity um, right so I don't want to I don't want to like be too cynical about that but you know at the same time you know I do know some of the people who kind of cosplay and pretend and like deny their first 30 years of their existence in the United States and mm-hmm. kind of pretend they were in Asia the entire time which is I'm like what are you doing like yeah. this is yeah. this is just a, a fantasy yeah that that line Tammy what do you think about that that line between being nationalistic in this way and sort of abandoning your americanness and uh and try to fully inhabit this vision do you think that's something that's happening right now because i've noticed it you know i've noticed it especially among korean and taiwanese people because of coronavirus in terms of the virus yeah, right. yeah and that um and it bothers me, but I, I was wondering how, what you thought. Yeah, about it. I, I would say that, that I'm bothered by the same thing as you are, because I think we can appreciate what's go- been going on there, you know, without fetishizing it, and without giving the, giving up the struggle here. You know, I think that's really important, and I think I think that's what we've been trying to do here is to say that that is the balance that needs to be struck. Um, yeah. And then I would add to that just the kind of thing that people like Brian who have been pointing out, which is that it's also not to look at Taiwan and be like, oh my gosh, the government did everything right. It's also to say yeah. the people were the ones who demanded it and implemented the systems that saved others. So if we yeah. keep focused on the people and the working class in different countries, that clarifies our vision. Yeah. Tammy, if you were offered like, not the best job in the world, but a very good job to be based in South Korea, um, would you do it? Like, let's say, like, good pay, health care, obviously, write in English, but use your Korean in your everyday life, speak to international audience, but, you know, use your familiarity with the people and language to your advantage. Would you consider going back? Yeah, definitely. Especially yeah. because I'm just had to pay a lot of taxes <laughs> and I'm sort of oh marginally employed right now but um the republican no, yeah. comes out right exactly <laughs> god damn these. Um, you're like a korean libertarian <laughs> uh, just, yeah. it was Playing my golf. first tax year where I didn't have grumbling about W2. taxes it was terrible <laughs> you've been radicalized yeah. by having to pay taxes um yeah, I I think that have you seen the documentary? This is the last we'll talk about, it and then maybe we'll get out of here. But like, have you seen the documentary uh, When We Were Kings? No. Um, it's about Muhammad no, Ali, no, right. and it's the uh, rumble in I the jungle in um, Zaire, and it's uh, especially one of the wonderful, right? wonderful documentary. The you know it's that sort of filmic thing where um, you know there's a period in the '70s where like, the film was just beautiful when it's processed and everything looks amazing and 
I'm not going to get into like all these racist things that documentarians say about like the light in Africa is so <laughs> beautiful for film. Maybe it's true, but like, you know, it sounds, sounds racist terrible. to me, so I'm just not going to say it. But the footage is beautiful. But, you know, you see Ali on these planes and he is sort of, you see him taking in Africa, right? Mm -hmm. And you see him having this revelation mm -hmm. in real time and talking to the camera, talking to like all the reporters who were there. And, you know, it's like every famous reporter was there, like Norman Mailer was there, like George Plimpton was there, That's like right. all these people mm -hmm. are, are there. And, um, and I think that to deny, to, not, to deny oneself this idea, especially for black Americans, that there are places where they are considered humans, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, or if, and for Asian Americans to like say, there's a place where I can walk around and not everyone is gonna stare at me or think of me as something different. I can sure. blend in here. Like when I was uh, interviewing that guy, when I went to Korea to interview Adam Krafzer, who was the guy who was a Korean adoptee right. who was deported to Korea, you know, like one of the things that he said to me, despite his life being horrible in yeah. Korea, was that one thing that he appreciated was that he could walk around and he just kind of looked like everybody else and it was weird to him, you know? Yeah. To deny yourself that, I think, is too strong. You know, like people should have those feelings. But it, it, it just, the slippery slope from there <laughs> to like full on like nationalism yeah. in this very like weird, abstracted and kind of mangled way yeah. is really short, I think, right? And that I think we should. Um, and that's something that people seem to be navigating a lot. Yeah. I don't have any prescriptions for it. And I've never actually felt like I could go back and just be Korean because I'm so, so assimilated in terms of like the way that I was raised here in the mm -hmm. United States. But I think that, uh, I think it's something that people are definitely thinking right now. And I do think there will be a lot of reverse migration back. I think, yeah, yeah for sure. That'll be yeah. interesting. Like, my friend who Rex Dizzy, who's a rapper, he's back there now. Oh wow! <laughs> in Korea, yeah. like for a while, like permanently. <laughs> I don't know. Oh my gosh! Uh, he and I only communicate through trolling, so I actually can't <laughs> sincerely ask him how long he's gonna be there. But he, like everybody else, is posting photos of his quarantine food and stuff I like see. that. Yeah. And so, um, I think there is going to be a lot of of reverse migration, nice. especially if Korea starts telling people to come back. Mm. And mm -hmm. saying, "Hey, we want to build like, uh, we want to build like a cultural um, media empire based off what you guys learned in America, <laughs> and we're going to pay you X amount of money." I think a lot of people would be. Yeah. I think Tammy will will be doing the podcast in Tammy. Like <laughs> <that. laughs> to wake up in, like in the like morning a, in, a, in like a in Gangnam or something like that. I'd be like, I'm oh, sorry, man. I gotta get it. I gotta, I, you know, <laughs> I gotta decompress a little bit. This is great over here. Um, all right, well, we missed a lot of the stuff we we're gonna talk about, but I think we're running long here. So, uh, yeah, should we just end it here? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thank you for listening to our show. Um, as always, you can follow us on Twitter at TTSGPod. Um, you can email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Is that right, Andy? Yeah. <laughs> I always get that wrong. <laughs> um, and the best way that you can support us is to sign up for our newsletter. That is goodbye.substack.com. A screen will pop up, but you can enter your email address and you will get all these podcasts and you will get. Um, a lot of the stuff that we write, including what Tammy wrote this week, or Tammy's interview this week with, uh, with Dr. Okazawa Ray, which I found to be totally fascinating. I'm sad that we didn't get to talk about it, but I think we'll talk about it next week. Um, it is a fascinating look at the Kambahee River Collective and 
their ideas about what identity politics really were. And, you know, interestingly enough, Kianga Yamada Thomas wrote a, Taylor, I'm sorry, wrote a piece uh, on the same day that really forcefully made the point, I think, in that, they were, that this was a different form of identity politics and that the capitalist version of it has been destructive. And that's something that I think that we have talked about on this podcast. And it was great to see written in the pages of the New Yorker. Um, all right, is that it? Good outro? Now you're going to play Sarah McLaughlin. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> take us out, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs>